0: I was given a title that was so broad I could ride a, drive a bus in any direction that I wanted to go on that. Um, first thing I want to say that compared to Canada, you're ahead of us in one particular aspect because your Supreme Court made a good decision on euthanasia. Uh, ours had a totally ahistorical uh, opinion which was social engineering and was the opposite direction. So we're now just about to... Uh, embark on the journey that the Dutch and the Belgians and the Oregonians and others have made, and we know where that goes statistically, that within a, a few years somewhere between 1 and 2,000 Canadians will die every year without any evidence of consent. Killed by doctors. Now it ought to be anyone but a doctor. Uh, I need to Go way back. Hippocrates started medicine for us 2,500 years ago and they killed patients in those days it was a very profitable activity it will be again Uh, but it doesn't encourage trust does it if your doctor can kill you with impunity rationally you ought to be a little wary of your doctor and you certainly need to know what he believes Uh, and so uh, i think we throughout the The Western world anyway, we need to start insisting that doctors declare what their belief system is. I'm very happy to do that. Uh, Normally I wear a little pin. It simply says Hippocrates on it, and it has the correct caduceus. Most of the doctors use the wrong one, but maybe it's the right one for them. If your doctor has the one with the snake on the stick and wings, that's Mercury. That's the god of businessmen and thieves. Uh, Microsoft, use it. Uh, But it's the wrong one. The right caduceus is the one of Asclepius, and he has one or two snakes and no wings. So uh, if you see a doctor who's portraying wings outside his office, you're already a little suspicious, or you should be. You can ask him about it. But fundamentally, Hippocrates wanted to start a better medicine. And he had four key insights that changed changed medical history. The first thing he understood was what I've already touched upon, that if your doctor does not fear judgment after death, you better start fearing your doctor. And he actually said, I will not teach this art to anyone who has not taken this oath, which begins with the invocation of transcendence. He was a polytheistic pagan, so he invoked the gods that he knew. Apollo, Hygiea, Panacea, Asclepius, and all the gods and goddesses, to, to hold him to his 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 pledge. What he understood next, and you probably don't think of your interaction with doctors this way, but when a patient comes to see a doctor, do they have to take the doctor's advice? They don't, do they? It's your choice. So what a doctor actually does is not a scientific or technical activity, primarily. What he does is help patients to decide what they ought to do. Now the word ought is a very interesting one, isn't it? There's no oughts in science. Science is an is-language, if you like, and usually it's a wrong is-language. People believe science and not the Bible, whereas science has got a very good track record of trashing what it currently calls truth and replacing it with something else, usually within a very few years now. Um, And even when we got it wrong, we're not good at when we trash it. I mean, we kept... uh, Ptolemaic Ptolemaic model of the cosmos for nearly 1,500 years. It was wrong. Newton got most of it right, as long as it was 1G, and then he was trashed. Uh, In modern molecular biology, you can expect your your paper to be valid for a week or two after it's published. That's about it. Uh, Science is provisional. We build models and knock them down again and replace them with others. Whereas from day one, the moral universe is unchanging. It goes from truth to to lies, from honour to dishonour, from evil to good, from fidelity to infidelity. You see how it works, it's a bipolar universe, and we live in the middle of it. And those categories haven't changed since day one. They're very complex, they're very big ideas, so we the way I put it is we live inside an explanatory story. And we used to have one that was common to everyone. During that period of history it was called Christendom. And in Christendom, you could get from physical facts to moral facts because everybody believed that the Bible was true, and that was the connecting link. But let me illustrate to you just how it's going to go as we become. We are, as J. Budziszewski puts it, we are logical but slowly because we're not trained in logic anymore. But I'll take Sam as my victim because he's the only guy whose name I know at the moment. But uh, just imagine that Sam has cancer. And that last week in my laboratory, I invented a cause, a, a cure for this cancer. Now, I haven't told anyone about this yet. And it so happens that when Sam dies, and he's a very wealthy man, I inherit his estate. Ought I to give him the cure now? What if I'm a real Darwinian and everything in life is really a matter of advantaging my genes? Well, I have 22 grandchildren and five children and their spouses. I've got plenty of people to spend the money on. So if it's all about a battle between his genes and my genes, then I should keep it, shouldn't I? Take the immediate winnings from his estate and then go through the hoops to market my cure for later winnings. And the major problem, with a rigid Darwinian approach to the world is that you can't get individual uh, behavior that you want out of it. There's no way it comes. You can get group ethics of some sort with fancy um, statistics, but the, act- the actual fact of the matter is it will never give you individual altruism. You don't, in fact, do a swift calculation of how many shared genes the child has got when they run in front of a bus. You grab them at the risk of your own life. And they can be any color, any background, if you're a real human being. That's what makes us human. The animals don't do that. We do. At our best. So, way back then with Hippocrates, he understood the difference. They they got to that. It's called the fact-value distinction now. You cannot get from physical facts to moral injunctions by any logical route in the modern world. You can only do that when we have a shared story that tells us those things. That it is good to love. It is good to be courageous. It is good to give your life for others. That's what makes the link. You can't get those things from science. Now, what we're struggling with throughout the whole of the Western world at the moment Is we don't have a common story anymore. That means we don't have societies in the real sense of the world, the sense of the word. All we have is collections of people within societies who agree to live together, usually for economic or other benefits. But we don't have a moral consensus anymore. And that's the biggest problem we face. Uh, A lot of people are beginning to realize this, and it's eroding virtue across the board. Perhaps the most interesting conversation I've had in the last dozen years or so was in, or one of them certainly, was in the University of Chicago. Uh, I was asked to do Grand Rounds there, which was a bit of a surprise to me because I was past my sell-by date as a trendy scientist. Uh, there was a story behind, but there isn't time to tell you today. But it's a great honor to do that. It's not like Grand Rounds in most uh, medical settings, which is an hour's lecture and on your way. It's a two- or three-day thing, two-day thing. and. Uh, so once I'd said yes, the secretary called me and said, uh, we booked you into a nice hotel. And I said, well, you can unbook me in Chicago. I always stay in South Side." And she said, that's the most violent part of the city. I said, I know it is, uh, but I have a friend who runs the oldest clinic for uh, the indigent poor in North America, right in the middle of Southside. I always stay there. It's more fun. And I-, I like seeing him and he'll get me wherever you want. And she thought I was crazy, but she said, okay. But then I did what they always do there. She said, is there anyone you want to meet while you're visiting our university? And I said, if you can arrange it, I would love to meet Robert Fogel. Now, Robert Fogel, it was, he died a couple of years ago. So was is the right word now. He, he was an, a Nobel Prize winner in economics from the world's most famous department of economics, Chicago. Um, but he had written a book around 2000 called The Fourth Great Awakening, which is not... Uh, a title you would expect from a secular Jew. Uh, And they arranged for the meeting. And when I got there, he was then about 80, I guess, but still going into the office. Uh, We had a wonderful conversation, but I I said to him, why did you write this book? Uh, It was such a surprise to me. Uh, And he said, because of my wife. He said, I am a secular Jew. I'm born and brought up in New York and live my life in Chicago. You don't get much more secular than that. But he said, I did one very un-Jewish thing. I married a black Episcopalian lady. And it had been a love match. And when she died, he realized, not only did he miss her, but he'd never really understood that it was she who gave him children of whom he was proud because she had taught them virtue, not him. And he was beginning to think about this by looking at the contrast with the students he was teaching in the world's most famous Department of Economics. So way back in 2000, he was wondering whether these guys were to be trusted with the economy, and he didn't think they were, and he was right, wasn't he? The meltdown in 2008 was an ethical failure, both on the part of the administrators and the bankers. He predicted it. I, I asked him what his fellow Nobel laureates made of this book. And he said, they haven't engaged. You're one of the few people to come and talk to me about it. And then we went, we started talking about virtue and how it's created, because what he had done when he looked at his young Americans that he didn't trust being Jewish, she was scholarly and rigorous. And he said, how come we didn't have this problem before? How come America succeeded? Anyway, America never had any development programs. None. So how, why did it work? I mean, in the, the early 18th century, America was not ahead of Europe in any category, was it? But 250 years later, they led the world in every category. How did that happen? And when he thought about it, he said, well, clearly the Puritans were important because they didn't care about money anywhere near as much as they cared about virtue. And they wanted to be the city set on a hill that was a light to all around. And they did a good job in many ways. But he knew, he said, he realized that, that virtue doesn't go on without being polished and cared for. And he has to be renewed regularly. He knew about Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield in the 18th century. He knew about the revival then. And he gave credit to what happened as a result. It renewed American uh, culture in, a, in an amazing way. He even knew about Finney in the 19th century, not quite in the same league. And then to my amazement, he said, I think something like that is happening now. And I said, I didn't expect that from you, but, but I agree with you. Now, when I was pulled out of my ivory tower in the, the 1980s, uh, it began, and by the 1990s, it was underway, and I actually left the university a little early, uh, around 2000, because of these issues. And uh, I said to, to, to Robert Fogel, so what do you think is happening? And he said, I don't know what's happening, but the young are more interested in these issues than they were a little while ago. And I know that's true. Uh, in North America anyway, and in Europe too. I don't know whether it's... I've heard even on this short trip some evidence that it's happening here too. The 25 to 35 age group, they know that something has got lost. That they have been robbed of their birthright in some ways. So when I'm talking to medical students and doctors, an audience of 50 to 100 would be common. But in the last few years... Lecture, uh, programs on apologetics get 500 to 2,000 people turning out for a lecture. The first time it happened, I couldn't believe it. People had driven over two states. To hear someone talk about how you give an account of why you believe, because their lives are empty. Emptiness is a big disease. It's a huge one. And you see it most, of course, the highest suicide rates in North America are the children of film stars. Their lives are so empty, they don't even want to go on living. Uh, materialism is not a very good religion. It doesn't need any preaching because it's immediately attractive in the short term, but it's not satisfying. Uh, and then I asked Robert Fogel what he thought about the Jewish approach to this, and he didn't know what it was. So I had the great privilege of teaching him his own history. Uh, but being a scholar, he didn't mind at all. He was fascinated. I had been taught it by another man, uh, Bruce Walkie, who who's one of America's greatest theologians, and he'd given some lectures in Ottawa a few years ago now, and he blew me away. Uh, particularly when he said, if you ask an Orthodox Jew, why is it that the Jews win all the real Nobel Prizes? I don't mean the silly ones like peace. I mean the real ones like biochemistry and medicine and, and the like. I mean, the people who who get those have got a track record that's worth thinking about instead of wanting to bury it immediately. But that's true. And if you ask an Orthodox Jew why, they will say, well, go read Deuteronomy 6. I didn't know what it was. Deuteronomy, I now look upon as the world's greatest commencement address. If you ever have to give a commencement address and you don't know what to do, just go plagiarize Moses. He got it right like nobody else ever has since. I mean, it is the model. And I I just digress. I wasn't going to say this, but you you look as though you're interested. So I'll say a little bit more about this. You can start at at chapter 4. Moses is not going to go into the promised land, but he's telling the children of Israel what they need to do if they're going to flourish. And every nation wants to flourish, but we don't want to do the work in most cases. The Jews didn't do it most of the time, but they get multiple bites of the cherry. When I asked about that, they said, well, we have a covenant that you don't have. Because most other cultures, it seems to me, get one bite of the cherry, and then we lose it, and it's over. Uh, The Americans look as though they're on the cusp, you know. Um, But not the Jews. And Moses says to the Jews a very politically incorrect thing. He says... Your greatest possession is the Torah, the law. And the nations around you will recognize that your law and your story is better than any other. You can't say that today because we're all supposed to be equal. We're different. We can't be equal. Equal science doesn't go with difference. Cultures are all different. And you have to decide what their strengths and weaknesses are and play to the the strengths and deal with the weaknesses. But most is straightforward. But he says, you will forget this. And then he reminds them of what happened. Now, some of you here, since we're in a church, probably are Christian. But I doubt that any of you had a conversion like what happened to the children of Israel at Mount Horeb or Sinai. I mean, you've never heard God speak to you in a voice and a language you understand accompanied by a small volcano and thunder and lightning. None of you have had that. But that's what happened to them. And if you talk to the Jews about what that did, he said, well, they'll say, well, we didn't have any free will after that, did we? Not for a little while, anyway, do you? I mean, if that's happened to you, you're not going to not believe in God. It takes a lot of faith to be an atheist today, but not that much. You can never prove there is no God. It's technically impossible to do that. You have to believe it. It's a faith. And they're behaving as though it's a faith, but not, not recognizing that. But while Moses was up the the, the mountain for the second time, uh, they broke the first three commandments in order. So if that kind of experience doesn't serve to make you good, what on earth will? It's not immediately apparent, is it? Well, Moses has an answer. First of all, he says, God heard what you said. And he, he said this, he said, Oh, that these people had such a heart and mind as this to keep my law, that it might go well with them and their children forever. The law is not an imposition. If you look at the law, both in Exodus 20 and in Deuteronomy 5, I imagine that most of you couldn't tell me what the phrase is that precedes the first thou shalt not. I don't see anybody jumping up and down wanting to tell me. But let's do it the other way around. It is actually this. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Could they get out of Egypt on their own? No. So isn't it amazing? Grace introduces the law in the Old Testament. It's not a new idea. It was there from the beginning. It was misunderstood, of course, till Christ came. But the law is introduced by grace. So it's not an imposition. God didn't change his character between the grace of bringing them out of Egypt and this set of laws. They are, I like to say, the ten divine intolerances. That's just to get another little push and twist into the culture where tolerance, which should be about 25th on the virtues list, it's not even really a virtue, is certainly not first. God, in the Ten Commandments, gives us a framework, which we need. If you ask students today what they mean by freedom, they will tell you, I want to do what I want to do. Freedom from interference. But if you follow that to its logical conclusion, it's called anarchy. If you try to drive home tonight as you wish, you will not get home. Neither will a lot of other people. That's not the way it can be done. We trade in some freedoms in order to get greater ones. The law is a framework within which freedom can happen. And when it is properly enculturated, when there is a legitimate intolerance to all those things, murder, theft, and all the rest, you actually get some real blessings out of that. Now, in South Africa, what I'm about to say will uh, not be something that you have experience of, but you'll be able to relate to it was a, a learning moment for me and it was in the Canadian prairies I was asked to give a lecture out there some years ago in a Mennonite community that had been there for 150 years or so it was a, it was April so it was only minus 10 it wasn't very cold um, and being a real community uh, several hundred people turned out of the thousand people who lived there and I talked as usual for far too long but when it was over, uh, I don't remember what I talked about, but it was too late to go back to Winnipeg that night, so the physician who had invited me said, you better stay with us tonight. So we drove into his garage in his nice car. He didn't lock his car. He left the ignition key in the car. He didn't lock his garage. We went into his house, and he pushed the door to, and he didn't lock it. certainly had no burglar device to turn on anyway. He said, your room's the one at the top of the stairs on the left, and it's late. Do you need anything tonight? I said, no, but I couldn't resist. I said, isn't leaving the ignition key in your car a trifle careless? He shrugged and said, you never know who may need it. That is true freedom, isn't it? You couldn't have a better definition of true freedom than that. Why could he do that? Because in that community, they teach at home, in school, in church. That thou shalt not steal is not an imposition. It's a gift. And because we all agree to it, they don't need a locksmith. Nobody locks their doors there. As one lady said to me, I'd like to have a front door key once in my life. Never had one. Even when they go on holiday, they don't lock their house because somebody might need something. Then they need to break a window. That's stupid. That is what the law is meant to be. The framework within which freedom can happen. When we lose those frameworks, we're not going to get better. Freedom de- defined as freedom from interference from other people is not going to be a good, a good experience. But the free, Christian freedom is freedom to do what you ought, not freedom to do what you want. And we, we're a long way from that. Now, as this process decays, it will get worse. What's even more interesting to me, and the bit that surprised Robert Fogel, is what the Jews understand about how this is to be done. They didn't keep the law. It didn't have that function. They broke it immediately. So maybe we just go home and eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we drive into a car accident. That's what it would be. But Moses says, no, you've got to change. And the way it's done is very practical. It's the Shema Israel, the, the most central statement of the Jewish faith. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and all your strength. How many of you could complete the verse for me? Raise your hand if you could. Nobody is raised there. Oh, one or two. If you're thinking and your neighbor is yourself, you're wrong. And you will never forget the right answer again. So you've had more benefit than anyone else tonight because you've just had a 100% learning experience uh it's this these things shall be upon your heart and you shall teach them diligently to your children when you sit at table when you rise up when you lie down when you go on a journey and later on the chapter about verse 22 he tells you how when your son asks you why we behave the way we do don't give him a lecture that's in the invisible print he says, tell him the story. We were slaves in Egypt. God rescued us, brought us through the desert into the promised land. So if he's saying, why do we go to the synagogue every week? see? shouldn't we go to worship a God who does that kind of thing once a week? And up to the age of seven, they will say yes. Then they've learned to rationalize their desires from watching you, and they'll start arguing. But we live in stories. Now, Ruth Waltke taught me that bit. And then I had a lovely experience a couple of years later, a very interesting conference where they paired, to make it more interesting, a theologian and a scientist for each session. And I was paired with Bruce Walkie, much to my delight. And I said, they're going to get Bruce Walkie twice, you know, once for real and once plagiarized. But he was delighted, actually, because he hadn't thought about what I got to say. I'm a pediatrician as a, in, in medical terms. And I like watching children. with 22 grandchildren. I have plenty of time to do that. But Uh, This was before that happened. But children are very interesting. What's the difference between the response of a seven-year-old and the response of an under five to the question, would you like a story? And while you're thinking about it, I'll tell you my answer, and I'll know whether you read to children by watching your face. The seven-year-old will go to her bedroom, and she'll bring you the book that she's in the middle of, and she'll milk you for as many pages as you will read because mum and dad or granny and granddad reading is better than television or anything else. The under five, even in our house, they have their bookshelf. They go and get a favorite book. Now, normally they wisely take it to my wife, who's endlessly patient. I am not. And I've read this book before. Uh, Some of you read to children. I can see already because you know what's coming. Uh, I try and shorten it. Yeah. Granddad, have you forgotten how to read? You know. <laughs> the little brat has brought me a book he knows every word of, so why does he want me to read it? And this is true in every culture I've visited, and I've visited a lot of them, but the story is different. But all children have a hardwired need for a safe, repeated story in their life. Now, in the modern world, with a plethora of books, many of which are actually dangerous propaganda, it's not as it used to be. There are only really half a dozen stories that are big enough to support a big society. The biggest one, of course, is pagan Africa, or the world as it was in pagan days. There, the book is the book of nature. So, particularly if you go further north, where it's still undiluted, in most villages, There's a storyteller, usually a boy of around twelve or thirteen, and he has to tell the story because the whole village knows it. Word they want it word perfect, and in many cases, almost most cases, I would say, certainly in places like Nigeria where it's become the cultural norm without any question, a little animal beats a big animal by trickery. Does that explain those emails you get from Nigeria? A con man is a is a hero. In Nigerian society is in Jamaican society too. Anansi there, the spider, the spider, the rabbit—it yeah, it, it turns up in various forms. But trickery is at the heart of it. So you can't go so far with that as the basic starting story. Then you have Eastern Western stories. The Eastern stories in Hinduism, Buddhism, and their offshoots explore going inwards because their view of the world is that it's basically an illusion. So you explore what you know best, which is yourself. So those stories lead to meditation and inward looking. The Western stories, Judaism, Christianity and Islam, all have the story of the fall. So it makes sense in that context to have the story looking outwards to find out what's going on there. So if your child grows up with the Book of Nature uh, as his book, he will be a pagan. Not as a, a pejorative statement, just as a descriptive statement. With, with pagan ethics, you know what they're like. Uh, if he grows up with the Quran, he'll be a Muslim with Muslim ethics. The Old Testament, a Jew with Jewish ethics. Uh, the Bible as a whole, a Christian with Christian ethics. That's how it works out. But certainly in North America, the, the book that they have now is called Television. And the repeated stories are the advertising. And then you get Donald Trump that's and Hillary Clinton. There's no difference between them at that level. No depth to either story. We have let our story waste away. It's such a pleasure when uh, you see the results of things you talk about. I talk about them sort of theoretically, but I've seen it in my own family, of course, where... My son, who's also a professor, but he never brings work home because he spends an hour a night reading to his children. He's got five of them every night. And you can already see the results. But I've been giving a version of this talk for about 15 years or more. And uh, I can now see in audiences somebody is going to come and tell me about how it's worked. I had a lovely one not so very long ago. I was being entertained way beyond the call of duty in the States by a a young doctor and his lawyer wife. Um, they obviously weren't short of money, but we were in a very nice hotel, uh, very nice restaurant for the second evening. And I said, this is beyond the call of duty. And they said, no, no, you've done so much for us. I said, I didn't meet you till yesterday. They said, we met you though. And they had heard me talk about this just as their first baby was in utero. And the guy said, I'm going to do that. I am going to read to this child every day before the age of seven and she is going to hear all the stories of the bible from my mouth before the age of seven he changed his work habits so that he finished at four thirty, went home which wasn't too far had a meal with his daughter put her to bed read the story then went back and did his office work he said i'm actually more efficient than i was before but he said watch this the little girl was there she was about under five and he turned to her and said Oh, what was Moses' sister's name? Was it Marjorie? And the little girl said, Daddy, you know it's Miriam. She's five. And she knows the stories of the characters in the Bible down to the level of Miriam. And she knew what Miriam did and what the consequence was. She has learned moral consequence without knowing the words moral consequence. Because children learn from stories. You should never tell them what the stories mean. Leave it at that level. Just teach them the stories. And wait for them to connect the dots. You teach them logic when they ask how and why. And rhetoric when they need to learn it later. Whereas Obama, for instance, brilliant at rhetoric but no content. That's the problem. That's our world. Perception is not all. Far from it. We need stories that will make a nation, a group, cohere. You're not going to get to it the way our politicians try. As they're now being taught, aren't they? Brexit, Trump, uh, so shortly France. Uh, it's it's clearly a wave around the world of people who realise their politicians are not serving them. You cannot have Adam Smith's economics if you don't have Adam Smith's ethics. And Adam Smith was a dull Presbyterian. You can't have enough dull Presbyterians. Uh, they make things work properly, they make very good accountants, you know, and all the rest. Uh, That's what you need. Our world has lost its way on this. And so we've seen this happen all over the place. Now, the way I was going to start was to say this to you. If you try to make an Orthodox Judeo-Christian comment on life, death, sex or evolution in the university, what will happen to you? You will be attacked immediately. So don't do it. There's a better way to do it. Ask questions. Learn from the rabbis. The best compliment I ever get is occasionally a rabbi will come up after a lecture and say, you teach like a a rabbi. What he means is, I know where I'm going, you don't. And you can keep an audience going because they want to know where this ends. They do it all the while. And of course, you know the joke about this. The guy goes to his rabbi with a question, and the rabbi immediately answers with another question. And after a few minutes, the guy says, why do rabbis always answer questions with questions? The rabbi says, why shouldn't rabbis enter questions with questions? Uh, you must go on questioning. And who are the, two, the world's two greatest questioners? Well, Jesus was number one, and Socrates was number two. And in the modern world, the incarnation is a man called Peter Craft. K-R-E-E-F-T. He teaches philosophy at Boston College. And he brings Socrates into the classroom. He he brings an imaginary Socrates back to today. And he simply asks questions. Uh, It works brilliantly. If you want a taste for Christmas, you could try um, either the best things in life, if you're an evangelical, that's published by uh, InterVarsity Press, if you're a Catholic, Uh, He publishes with Ignatius too, A Refutation of Moral Relativism. They're both already written as dialogue. The latter one, uh, the refutation, is very clever. It's not Socrates this time, it's uh, a Muslim scholar, because Muslim scholars believe in objective moral truth, unlike most of the rest of the world. And he's arguing with a sassy black American feminist who doesn't believe in objective moral truth. It's interesting to watch because, of course, it's the sassy black American feminist who gets beaten up. Uh, Because, of course, moral relativism is incoherent. Uh, And yet it's the one thing that you can be certain every student in the class believes, that all values are equally valuable. cannot possibly be true. But when it comes to moral relativism... Uh, It is just unbelievable what happens. Now, I now, with uh, several others, teach a course in the history of ideas, predicated on the premise that we are the product of Hebrew and Greek thought modified by the church. That's who we are in the Western world. In Africa, you'd have to modify that a little bit, my wife suggests. I haven't thought about quite how you would do that, but um, it's certainly a true description of us. And it works. We started it 20 years ago because we saw the university unjustly and maliciously rip faith away from innocent young people instead of strengthening it. So we started a course to teach them how to make fools of their professors. One of our students did it beautifully in, in the first PowerPoint of pre-med school. He took the professor down because it was the lecture was on psychosocial medicine. So up came the title, then click, up came the first point. There are no absolutes. And a lot of people who practice biopsychosocial medicine will say, yes, yes, that's perfectly true. Nathan put up his hand. And the guy looked up. I assure you, you don't get questions from the floor in first year med- university very often. Uh, and certainly not at the first PowerPoint. Uh, the prof looked at him and said, young man, do you have a question? He said, yes, sir. Is that sentence internally consistent? Got it? You have just made an absolute statement to prove that absolute statements don't exist. That's the law of non-contradiction, down and gone. And with the law of non-contradiction, so is the whole of learning gone. Because without it, we have nothing. If there is nothing that can be seen as a starting premise, there is no learning. If there's nothing obvious, we go nowhere. That's the starting point. He'd taken him down. Fortunately, he was a good guy. He, he knew what to do. If a, if a student takes you down in that way... The only thing to do is to climb down graciously and then make some inane excuse, you know. He, he did it very nicely. He said, I suppose I should say thank you. I must have been asleep when I wrote that bit, so I will take it out. But because most students don't have any training in classical logic anymore, they can be suckered into almost any false statement. Uh, we need to teach our children logic in the modern world. Politicians use the undistributed middle continuously. Me or disaster? No. Either side, Trump or Hillary, a bit of a disaster. Uh, the vast majority are in between those two. The undistributed middle is everywhere in our society, fortunately. you know, I can even get medical students to write down from a lecture they take notes. I'll say in a, a lecture on the biochemistry of exercise, uh, when you're fit, you don't need exercise. If you're sick, you certainly shouldn't take it. And they write it down. Now some of them by this stage, because it's about halfway through, will realize this is one of those moments where he's having us on. So, and they enjoy the game. And I, I look up at them and say, did I say something wrong? And the smart ones who playing the game say, well, I think so. Well, what did I say wrong? You can never tell me. That's the undistributed middle. What I've done to you in your head is divide the world into the fit and the sick. And you took it. But... That the world is not divided like that. There's probably one or two fit people here and a few more sick people. And the rest of you, like me, are slightly lazy slobs. You know, that's, that's the way the world is divided. Now, a medieval monk would have picked that up before the end of the sentence. And he'd have been laughing. But not in the modern world. We are not a patch on them. Yeah, there was a lot wrong with what they were doing, but it wasn't at that level of logic. They knew when something was proved and when it was false. Lewis understood that this was a problem. He says so in the introduction to the Screwtape Letters, that the modern student is perfectly capable of holding several logically incoherent ideas in their head simultaneously. And they are. So how does this work in our world? Uh, to make it quite plain, I made the same sort of mistake. I grew up in a an evangelical home. Uh, I went off to university. Within a week or two, I was turned into a reductionist without knowing what that was. And it took years to recover. You will hear uh, reductionism in church on Sunday morning, and you won't recognize it. But the worst version of it for me, I became pro-choice. Not over a woman's right to begin with, but over rubella babies. I I was doing infectious diseases in London in the early 60s before we had a rubella vaccine. German measles. So every now and again, hopefully all the women capable of having children have had rubella immunization. But before that was available, it, every now and again, a woman would arrive with a rash and she said, and say, I'm pregnant. Is this German measles? I say, well, it, it's compatible with it, but there are several other viruses that can do that. We need a blood test and another blood test in a week's time. And then you see me a couple of days later. So we can see if there's a, a rising titer." Then... I'd have the job, in most cases, of saying no, you're perfectly all right, go ahead with your pregnancy, there's nothing to worry about. But every now and again, you had to say to a woman, well, given where you are in your pregnancy, you have something like a 90% probability of having a baby with major cardiac and or neurological problems. And what I was taught to say as a junior doctor at that point was, say, uh, this pregnancy has gone wrong, hasn't it? And the woman would say yes. Would you like to start again? Yes. Well, we can make that happen. You'll have to come into hospital briefly, and then you can start again. We never mentioned the word abortion. It went on the operating room list as a DNC, and c and I felt uh, no guilt because the problem had been solved. And it was going to be 20 years before I started thinking about whether there should be some guilt. We have become a whole culture where feelings are all, aren't they? Uh, I face it all the while. You can imagine I'm not the most happily received lecturer in a liberal environment, but I go there frequently. And at the end of the lecture, uh, it's not rare, usually for a woman, to stand up and say, I am offended by what you have been saying, to which my response is, I'm very sorry, I had no intention of offending you. Can we now discuss whether what I said was true or false? That's the end of the discussion. I do not set out to offend, but truth is offensive these days. Truth ought to be a defense under all circumstances, but it isn't anymore. So you've got to be very careful how you do it. It's like playing poker with high stakes, uh, but learn to ask questions. So the abortion thing I didn't get to for a long, long while. But then in my late 40s, uh, I think it was God, God on my case. Uh, my wife, I think, was away in Africa at the point where this happened. We, Because of my interest in malnutrition, we'd had a project running in Central Africa for years. Um, and Sally is an Africa file, uh, so she comes a month before me and stays two months later, allegedly to clear up the mess. Um, but any excuse to go to Africa is a good one. So, uh, sometimes she was away, and I could be a bachelor briefly. But this particular day, I was bored with my work, which one protein had kept me off the week, off the streets and funded for 25 years and had a good laboratory. They didn't need me. I went to my office and shut the door. And for the first time in my life, asked myself the question, can I think that a woman has a right to an abortion? Up till then, it was, I bought the feminist line. This is a woman's thing. Men can say nothing about it because it's about how you feel. By the end of the afternoon, I knew that not only could I not feel it, I could not think it either anymore. And in a way that I didn't think anyone could resist. I didn't want anything to do with this can of worms. I didn't think, if somebody had told me at the beginning of the day, I was about to write a lecture, which I would have actually a lot of fun with, but also a lot of, uh, no, it's not true to say, a lot of fear, I didn't. But, Uh, I tried it out on a a good friend, uh, a a Jesuit who teaches quantum physics and theology, you know, smart guy. And uh, he said, I think that would work. I still didn't say anything about it. But my wife, who causes all the trouble in my life, had set up a website. Because people complained that I was near, they could have got to a lecture and they didn't know I was there. And she said, I can't tell everybody in America where you where. I, I can't know that, but I can put your calendar on the web and then they can go if they want to. And I said, well, you put it on a, you put it on a website, but nobody will go there. She was right, as usual, and I was wrong. Uh, lots of people go there. But the first bad outcome, from my point of view anyway, was I was going to the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor to lecture, and the students from Detroit called and said, you've got to go through Detroit to get to Ann Arbor from Ottawa. Uh, would you lecture to us first? And I said, sure, that's fine, if, especially if you'll drive me to Ann Arbor and save them the trouble of coming to pick me up. And they said, we'll do that. What do you want me to talk about? And they said, well, it will be January the 22nd, which is the anniversary of the Roe v. Wade decision, the American abortion decision. We want you to talk about abortion in the medical school in the middle of the day. And this was Wayne State, which is, uh, has a very high proportion of black students and the black community in America has the highest abortion rate. I said, no, I don't do that. And they said, why? And I said, I don't want to be lynched in public. And they said, but we've heard you speak. We think you could do it. I said, flattery will get you nowhere. And then they did the Christian thing and said, but we've been praying about it. <laughs> uh, and I knew that this was going to happen at some point. So I said... Well, as long as it's in a lecture room with an escape hatch by the the lectern and you take me to Ann Arbor immediately, I'll do it. Because I knew I had to at some time. To my astonishment, the lecture ended in dead silence, as it has done every time since. I must have given it 80 times, from University of California to Detroit to Harvard to Oxford to St. Petersburg to Sydney. Never had a single aggressive question at the end of the lecture. I haven't taken away a woman's right to an abortion, but she doesn't want it anymore. Because all these things come with consequences. We all accept physical consequence, don't we? If you jump off a skyscraper when you hit the ground, you're dead. That's physical consequence. Moral consequence is what happens to you when you do something which is wrong. If you lie to get out of a situation, and then you go on lying to get out of the situation, you become a Bill Clinton. He was one of the smarter American presidents. He achieved remarkably little, given the time he did, because his habit of lying was using up all his energy, trying to defend himself. That's what happens. If you use lies, you become a liar. That's moral consequence. And it changes who you are. You're, you are what you have done, in many respects. It's not to say there isn't such a thing as redemption. There is, but even redemption doesn't take away consequence. Yeah, all that, can, all that can be done, it can be redeemed, but it's redeemed by using your bad habits and your bad behavior to help other people. If you're in the habit of trying to help people with problems you've never had, deal with the one you do have. It's called hypocrisy. Um... There's plenty of people there with all the problems that humans have. We've all got bad sides of our life which got us touched and changed, then we have a duty to help others. And when we do, that's the best redemption you get. So how does this work? Well, what we fail to do in our society is to we become too obsessed with immediate responses, sort of like sticking a plaster over a cut or giving aspirin to a pain, not finding out whether it might be appendicitis. We don't go deeply enough. The problem with abortion and euthanasia and sex problems and all these issues that are so politically incorrect at the moment is we start in the wrong place. Now, the way I do it, and there must be other ways of doing it, but this works well, and especially since I spend a lot of time talking to medical students. Now, I can say to any medical class in North America, and here. It's even worse here than it is in North America, actually. I tell you, any class, within six weeks of starting medical school, if I were to say to you that you've already decided that a good proportion of your class are not to be trusted, and you will never trust the care of a dog of yours to them, what would you say? And all round the room, you can see the, the smiles. The answer is yes. And I say, if we took a consensus vote in the class about who these untrustworthy students are would there be agreement the answer is yes again now I used to say it was about 20% but last year one of my graduates from the history of ideas program in medical school in a well-known medical school in the states sent me an email so you've got to change your figures I don't trust 50% of my class and the 50% that I do trust are at the bottom of the class because the top half are in a very sophisticated cheating cartel. And you can't complain about it because they have enough power to see that you get things on your transcript which will make sure you don't get a decent residency. It's sewn up. You know something about this sort of thing in in South Africa from reading your newspapers, it appears that way anyway. One professor in that particular university last year, Failed a whole class and resigned from the university. He said, the ethics are so low, I can't teach anymore. This is a real problem. It was first picked up a long while ago, actually. I think the first person to start writing about it was Alan Bloom in the University of Chicago in the 1980s when he wrote The Closing of the American Mind. Alan Bloom was a Jewish uh, philosopher, uh, probably Chicago's best teacher of Aristotle and, and Plato. He was also a radical homosexual who uh, seduced his his students quite often. He died of AIDS, but he was a brilliant man and he was honest. And he wrote The Closing of the American Mind because the, the American education system was sending him students he couldn't teach. He said, I have to do remedial training, I'm not going to do that. What was he talking about? Well, he was talking about the fact that they had no story in their lives that was rich enough. He needed the metaphors. He wanted them to know the Bible, Old and New Testament, although he was an atheist. Why? Because it provides all the metaphors that he needs. But they don't know them anymore, so they don't work. The last telegram sent from Dunkirk to London at the beginning of the Second World War was three words. It was understood. I doubt whether more than a few percent of you would understand it now. Let's try. The telegram was, but if not. It arrived in London from the Dunkirk beaches and was immediately understood. Raise your hand if you know what it means. One, understandably grey hair. This is a test that the more grey hair or no hair you have, the more likely you are to pass. For the rest of you, it's brilliant. It goes like this. You do actually know it, many of you. Being known unto you, King Nebuchadnezzar, our God is able to save us from the fiery furnace. But if not, we will not bend the knee. Isn't that a magnificent telegram to send? How much more magnificent immediately understood in London. Why? Because when my wife and I went through school, we had a chapter of the Bible read to us every day in school. When I was in elementary school, we actually had a psalm reciting competition between all the classes. So the whole class could chorally speak a psalm. I still remember Miss Crockett teaching me Psalm 22. Uh, Shakespeare cannot be understood properly if you don't know the Bible, because there's a biblical allusion on pretty well every page. You miss it. You miss the point. One more example, just to make you feel a little more painful and perhaps do something about it. There's a poem from the 18th century which has the line, Standing amid the alien corn. How many of you can solve that one? Again it's biblical. You do know it. Alien? Foreign. So it's about a refugee coming from one country to another. Actually with her mother in law, who's also a widow, some of you got it now. They were so poor they had to rely on the Jewish gleaning laws, which required that the farmer leave some corn at the corner of the fields for the poor. And standing in the field was Boaz, the kinsman redeemer the type of Christ. All that in five words. And in the 18th century, the poet could reasonably expect all his readers to understand that. Not one in a hundred English grads would get that. That is not progress. If it is progress, it's in the wrong direction. We're progressing towards deeper and deeper ignorance. And we don't appreciate real learning that could pick up that sort of thing. That's the world we live in at the moment. It needs to change. So with those students having got to the point of them admitting very clearly that there are untrustworthy people in medicine for whom it would be better for medicine and for patients if they weren't there, but that the faculty never know. And I say to them, well, those that you don't trust, they're not immoral, they're amoral. They're not properly thought out. They're basically just navel-gazing Narcissists, they only care about themselves, nothing else. That's what they are. But the rest of you, apart of course from issues of sexuality and life and death, do you trust them to practice ethical medicine? And the answer is yes. So now we've arrived at the real problem. Here you've got colleagues, but you don't agree on the nature of morality. You have some who don't know what morality is. That's really bad. But within those who do, there are two versions of it that are competing. They're they're not coherent and they cannot be made coherent. So what do we do? Well, first of all, it means if you use the word bigot in the discussion of abortion, you are the bigot. That would help, wouldn't it? Because it would make the conversation a lot more healthy. Because a bigot is someone who will not concede that they might be wrong. And by and large, it's pro-choice people at the moment who are in that state. And they need to change that for their own sake. To become more honest, better people. So I say, I hope that I've removed the word bigotry from the discussion in this medical school. That will make it a nicer place. Now, we need... We don't have to stop there. We can look at consequence. You're taught to do outcome analysis, so let's do it. And follow Thomas Aquinas' advice. Always make your opponent's case better than they can first. I was pro-choice for a long while. I knew the reasons. Uh, We ought to acknowledge that if it was made illegal, there would be backstreet abortions. If you've ever seen one, you never want to see another one. And since it's perfectly rational to be an abortionist, as I'll explain in a moment, if and only if you believe some other things, uh, we ought to acknowledge that and we don't want that. But the other side hasn't actually looked at the consequences at all. But let's start with an imaginary situation. Imagine an abortionist and Mother Teresa. And a woman comes in, and she wants an abortion. Now, the abortionist I use when I'm in Canada is Henry Morgenthaler, who's dead now, but all you need to know about Henry is that he lost all his family except one brother in Auschwitz. That brother, by the way, did not approve of Henry's subsequent activities. But I think all of you here would appreciate that if you'd gone through that experience, you might not believe in a God of love after that. Henry didn't. But he was a feminist, and he thought women shouldn't have their lives constricted by their biology. So when a woman got pregnant and she didn't want to be pregnant, he would do an abortion, even when it was illegal, and then tell the police to arrest him. And he got, the, he got abortion. He was the guy who pushed uh, the legalization of abortion and got it through, and he got an order of Canada in the end. Um, what does he believe with that experience? He believes that life has no ultimate meaning. He's a utilitarian. And that's what you do if you don't believe that life has any ultimate meaning. And if life is like that, if it has no meaning, it is in fact absurd, then abortion is perfectly rational. That's what you need to believe to be a rational abortionist. Because his ethics are rather crass ethics of net happiness. If an action makes the world more happy than it was before, it's a good action. And if it does the opposite, it's a bad action. Now, an unborn baby is neither happy nor unhappy. It hasn't reached that level of de- development yet. So you've done nothing to the net happiness. The uh, the, the net absurdity in the world It's still absurd. But the net happiness has increased because the mother's anxiety is relieved. She's not going to have to deal with the baby. So it's a good action. But, and I think only if life has no meaning. It's absurd. Now think of what Mother Teresa sees. She sees two eternally significant lives, in her view, one of whom is about to damage her own soul. What's the ethical thing to do now? It's the exact opposite. It is a logical consequence of the starting ethical premise. Now, in our modern world, I think what we have to do is provide space for both. Without using foul language and bigotry and all the rest until both sides, or one side at least, decides that's the better way to go. And what hasn't been done and needs to be done is to look carefully at what happens when you do that, when you make a law like that. Now I've watched the whole process because this started in the 1960s for me and it's a bit past that now, isn't it? But I've watched the whole process. And I call it the domino effect of abortion legislation. The first thing to go down was rather innocent at first sight, but not at further examination. Because some of the first women to have abortions were told by the feminists who arranged it, this is just a trivial operation, less than having a tooth removed. But they came back to the feminists and said, I feel as though I have killed my baby. It's difficult to answer that question, because no one in this room can stand up and defend the doing of gratuitous harm to an innocent person, right? Nobody can defend that. But that's what you do when you kill a baby. It's certainly innocent. It's not a cat or a dog. It's got a unique human genome. You were once that size and it didn't give permission. But a clever woman philosopher in the states found a way out. When I'm debating these people, they will always give me that human beings are formed at conception. There's no other time when the genetic mixture changes. That's when you'll get your unique 3.5 billion ID number. There's no other time when that happens. From then on, it's just development. So the smart feminists won't argue against that at all, because they would lose that argument if the audience is rational rather than emotional. But what they go on to do is say, what what Annette Bayer said was, we need a new definition of human persons. For you, a human person and a human being are the same thing, but not for a bioethicist. For bioethicists, The idea of a human person is now largely functional. The dominant definition is probably you become a person when you're capable of relationship. Now, women don't look at the guy next to you and wonder whether it's happened or whether it will ever happen. But I'm sure that some woman will kill her husband when he's drunk and argue in court in America that he wasn't a person at the time and she will win. We've already gone halfway there. No, that works, but... You can't stop logic. If you take a functional definition, where do you draw the line? Hillary Clinton and Obama both argued that it was a woman's right. As long as the baby still had the head in the birth canal, you could pith it. It's called partial birth abortion. Both Hillary and Obama voted that that was a woman's right. Now, I think politicians and lawyers should do that. I think they might do it once. They'd never do it again. I mean, that means the difference between something you can kill at will and a human being is about six centimeters. That's, that's how far the logic has gone. It's actually gone further. The Dutch, who have more experience in this area than any other, a few years ago now, published in the New England Journal of Medicine, a protocol for killing babies who are in no immediate danger of death because they were judged by the physician to have a, worth not, a life not worth living. Most of them had spina bifida. Some of you may even have a child with spina bifida. Uh, you probably know someone. They don't like having spina bifida, but they wouldn't trade their life in if that's all you could do. They enjoy their lives. But that's we've got to that. Of course, geriatricide is the next one. It's on the way. It's being done already. It's legal in many places now. And if you went home tonight and got herpes simplex encephalitis and had an IQ of 60 in the morning shortly, that will be acceptable too. That's the next domino to go down. The next one is even more dangerous. The one dissenting judge in the uh, American abortionist said, this decision is not about justice. It is about raw judicial power. No one can have more power over someone else than the power to take away their life without consequence. And of course, if you can take away their life, you can take away all their human rights, and the whole of the human rights edifice collapses. That's where we're headed. The man who wrote about this most clearly was another Jew, and again, an atheist, a man called Arthur Leff, who taught common law at Yale in the 1970s. And he was looking at his law students a bit before the economic students and saying, I don't trust them. And he gave an amazing lecture at Duke in 1979 called Unnatural Law, Unspeakable Justice. You can get it easily by putting Left Justice Duke, 1979, it will pop up. It's about a dozen or more pages. It's so good, I have the first paragraph in my head, at least in a a roughly paraphrased version. It begins like this, he says, I want to believe, and so do you in a complete, immanent, and transcendent set of propositions about right and wrong, findable rules that direct us as to how to live our lives righteously. Now, immanent is a technical term meaning accessible to us, that we can understand. He's talking about Torah. He's a Jew. He wants the law to be transcendent from God. Why? Well, if it isn't from God, who keeps the judges in order? Brightening question, isn't it? You were this close. We've gone over that edge. All our judges in our Supreme Court think they discover the law. They think they don't discover the law, they make it. That's a huge change. He goes on however, uh, and said, but I also want to believe, and so do you, in no such thing as a transcendent law. But rather that we are wholly free to decide for ourselves what we ought to do and what we ought to be. What we want, heaven help us, is to simultaneously be perfectly ruled and perfectly free that is at the same time to discover the right and the good, and to invent it. You cannot have both. And we are largely making, in my view, the wrong choice. He then writes 20 pages of lucid prose discussing these two. Sadly, he's at Yale in 1979. Social Darwinianism is so PC, it's unbelievable. That's going now. But it wasn't then. So he can't bring himself to live with his own conclusion. So the penultimate paragraph is very sad, but very honest in another way. He says, in effect, Darwin's right. He doesn't mention Darwin, but he says, it looks to me as though we are all that we have. That's the Darwinian position. We've won the lottery. That sort of, we're a product of just timeless chance. But he's honest. He says, looking around the world, this is an extraordinarily unappetizing prospect. If brotherly love exists, the ruling model appears to be Cain and Abel. And nowadays I have to explain to students who Cain and Abel were because they don't know anymore. Only if the law was unnatural and unspeakable by us would it be unchallengeable. As things stand now, everything is up for grabs. That is the first statement I know of in the legal literature which points out what has happened to the law, that it has become not the pursuit of justice, but the pursuit of power. Again, you have plenty of evidence of that in your society at the moment. Every university has it in at least three sub-faculties. Women's studies, black studies, and homosexual studies all teach that, that the law is about power, not about justice. And if a lie will serve, you t- you tell the lie. The most egregious example, I think, being Martha Nussbaum in the States, brilliant scholar, who actually perjured her own data to advance the homosexual cause, her own thesis in, in court, but very cleverly so that she couldn't be sued. When asked why she did it, she said it was necessary for the cause. She didn't, she didn't deny that she died. That's where we've got to that level. Now, there's a whole lot of other dominoes. The animal rights movement is related to, but it's already 10 to 9. My wife is not waving her hands yet. Normally she would be saying, it's time to stop. But the last one I do need to say something about, because it's something you care about. The last clinic I ran ran before I retired from doing medicine was for severely disabled children, mainly with metabolic disorders, interesting complex uh, genetic disorders, and and a lot of cerebral palsy. Shortly before I finished doing clinical medicine, one afternoon, a mum came in, and she'd obviously been crying. And I said, what's the matter? And she said, I came on the bus. On the bus, a woman there looked at my baby and said, why didn't you have that thing aborted? She didn't have a pretty baby, but she was pouring her life into caring for it. I mean, what kind of people have we become when we can say that sort of thing? I said, I think I can explain to you why she said that, and it might make you feel a little better. I would be willing to bet a fair amount that that woman has had an abortion for an essentially trivial reason, like having booked a winter holiday in the Caribbean then finding she's pregnant and doesn't want to go with a bump. So she aborts and goes has the baby later. That's how casual it has become. Several of our subgroups in Canada are clearly doing gender-selective abortions because their male-female ratio is not biologically possible. We say nothing about it because it's politically incorrect. We need to talk about these things. Because if we lose honesty, we lose everything. If we lose freedom of speech, we lose everything. I like Voltaire. He said, I disagree with you entirely, but I give my life for your right to say it. I don't want Muslims shut down. I want them brought into public so that what they're saying can be discussed so that the radicals can be sidelined and the moral objectivists can take the center stage that they should have, because they've never done it on their own historically. All these things need dis- discussion, serious discussion. Uh, many of them don't want it because they know that their case is not a good one. Now, doctors are very responsible for some of these things because we don't talk about things we should talk about. I would like to take all politicians and people and make them do a few things. And one of them would be a few nights on call at the weekend in any big city. That would change their, uh, in the emergency department, that would change their view on almost everything. Uh, we don't talk about what we have to do. should. Now, I've said a lot of things I shouldn't have said, uh, but I'm leaving uh, <laughs> shortly. Uh, whether I come back remains, but usually I do. I've been to Cuba many times, and the Minister of Health said to me on one occasion, we know what you do. We like the medicine, and we tolerate you teaching pastors and others, but don't push the the limit too far. I did on one visit when I was still talking to young people in church on Sunday night at midnight, and they can't get people out to a Communist Party meeting at any time of day or night. I, I wasn't intending to say quite what I've said, and I want to say... Three very brief things to finish with. Well, I'll remind, first of all, be a rabbi. Learn to ask questions. Teach your children to ask questions. Anybody in university should have on the fridge, don't make statements, ask questions. And learn to ask the right ones. Every teacher has to allow you to ask a question. So when a medical student is asked, or a resident is asked to do something which they find morally repugnant, I say, don't say no. Say, you're the boss, but before I do it, may I ask you a question? And the question is, do you wish you and your family to be careful by a doctor with or without moral integrity? Gotcha. Everybody, everybody wants a doctor with moral integrity. It therefore follows that you must not dismantle the moral integrity of a doctor, especially if he's serving a significant group of the population. We need to adjust our medical student throughput in relation to the population size they serve. So the 3% or less of people who are have... Other than heterosexual relationships need that number of doctors. Uh, Christians need whatever the number is and the Muslims and the rest. That's all we can do. That's the only honest way to go about it. Uh, we can adjust the figures further because, of course, you may or may not know this, but if you're in church three Sundays out of four, your lifetime family health care costs will be roughly 25% of that of those who aren't there. That's what it does for you. You've never heard a Minister of Health say that, have you? But it's true. And it's beginning to be worked out in the States because obviously with a a health-funded private system, why should I pay for people whose behaviour I've told them is unhealthy as though it's their right to take that money from me? I'm willing to help them, but they must call it charity. So that's one set of things. Secondly... Push back to first premises. Every argument must have a starting premise. Our world has been denying starting premises for a long time. So, for instance, if you have strong views about Genesis 1, which we could argue about for a long while, but the first question must be, in the beginning, what? Something or some mind? It's one of the two. We can't imagine anything coming without one of those two. We can't imagine a chair making you But we're supposed to think that that's more rational than saying a mind thought about the chair first. Now, it's not stupid to think that a mind comes first. And a lot of really smart people are making that move. Nagel is the most recent one, I think, who's one of America's best-known atheistic philosophers, who honestly said years before, I don't want there to be a god. But he gave in about a year ago. And you should have seen the flak he'd taken. It's a perfectly solid intellectual position. If you can't agree on a starting premise, you can't have a rational argument. There's no point in going on. You're just wasting your time. Don't waste it. So, insist on starting premises. What are you presuming when you say X or Y? Next, look at ordering. We don't think about ordering very much. But the virtues are not laid out like a smorgasbord, where you take a bit of what you want when you want it. They have a rational order. And when that order is changed to another rational order, there are consequences as usual. Now, you can divide the whole world up into two groups with a single question. In your subculture, if there was a clash between speaking the truth about it and loyalty to it, which would win? Now, only two groups have put truth above loyalty consistently historically, and that is Jews and Christians. For a Muslim, the Quran teaches quite straightforwardly. Anything you do to advance Islam is good. That is loyalty to Islam. Now, does it matter? Oh, yes. How do you get your job in a society where loyalty is trumps? By who you know. How do you get it where truth is trumps? By what you know. Which will be the more efficient society? That's a no-brainer. And it's always worked out that way. These things are not small. When tolerance is placed at the top of the list, we're in trouble. Because it's what you will not tolerate that makes your society stable. As I illustrated, with. when you don't tolerate theft, you don't need a locksmith. And that's, that's across the board. So the order in which you put these things matters. If you want a real takedown of tolerance, Dorothy Sayers did it better than anyone else. Just put Dorothy Sayers, S-A-Y-E-R-S, and tolerance into Google, and you'll get a most marvelous piece of uh, over-the-top rhetoric. But, but it's also truthful. So think about the ordering of the goods. The First things first. The church needs to think about this a lot. You know, If a church puts, as Paul pointed out, whether you speak in tongues or not above Christ, you're in trouble. Christ comes first. As Paul puts it in Colossians, Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's his summary. Read that whole passage. Get the priorities right. And finally, learn to look at consequences. Now, I have kept you till nearly nine o'clock and you haven't gone to sleep. Um, I don't know whether you want to stay longer and ask questions. Do you? But I finished. Thank you, John. Are there any questions that you'd like to put to him? We know it's getting on, but we'll just take a few questions. Yes, it sounds like rather a strange question. Could you <laughs> comment on chemical abortion? It's a low, bit of a loaded question. It's making life even more difficult than before. Yes, um, the the pill to produce abortion is uh, it works, but it, it has it's not fully worked out, and it's co- it causes a lot of problems to healthcare because of course when you use that many of them have a partial abortion and then the emergency department has to pick up the bits and the other part that they had not thought about is a woman who has, takes that pill and then passes into the toilet something that she can see is a baby she, that wasn't what she's told she's been doing so the dishonesty about what we say is, an, is exactly the same it makes it at first sight look as though it's going to be different, but it, it isn't. So uh, we're, we're always trying these kinds of deceptive moves where actually what it really is remains the same as it always was. And what I've tried to say tonight is that if we don't think carefully about our central informative story that tells us what it means to be human and start instead of saying, because we can do it, that's okay, we'll do it. No, it's what a man won't do that determines what sort of man he is. And this is, and most of all, we need to make it very clear that, that I would put abortion stand-alone. It should be anybody but a doctor. You don't need to go to medical school for 10 years to do an abortion. and You don't need to go to medical school for 10 minutes to learn to put a needle in a vein with poison in it. So both euth- euthanasia and abortion should be done by politicians and lawyers as far as I'm concerned. We can teach them what they have to do in 10 minutes and then they can do it. It would stop very quickly. Um, this also might be quite loaded, but um, one of the questions that I was always asked a lot when I did my uh, studying at Varsity was um, where do you draw the line for intervention and abstinence in terms of medical field? So you say you don't want to intervene for abortion, but surely something like surgery or giving a cancer patient – a, a treatment, yeah. actually that can also be seen as taking away life. Yes, it's a wildlife, standard question. Or, yeah, yeah. I mean, yes. Yeah. yes, sure. <laughs> well, the most, there are three things about any action that you have to discuss when you're talking about morality. There's the action in itself, there's the intent of the actor, and there's the outcome. And the ones you've described, the intent of the actor is to save life, not to destroy it. So it's an entirely different activity from a moral point of view. So it's not really a problem at all. It's just the way that it's expressed. Now, it feels like a problem. That's where we've got to learn to think and uh, have our minds dominate our feelings. There's nothing in the New Testament that makes you responsible for how you feel. You're responsible for what you do with your feelings, but that's an act of thought. And it's our minds that have atrophied. This is an Anglican church, isn't it? I can can get away with things like this in some Anglican churches. I asked the audience, congregation, why were the epistles written and nobody volunteers an answer? Truthful for one for many of them, well, he sends me to sleep on Sunday morning. But that's not what it was for. Uh, Paul wrote his epistles in every case because the church was making bad choices. In Corinth, it was sexual choices. Uh, in Thessalonians, it was about work. You know, in Galatians, they didn't want the Holy Spirit anymore. You know, they, they had negative talent. And Paul's thought was that some theology could put that right. So he teaches some theology. And then he says something like this, if you've understood what I've said, then you ought not to be like the people around you, but transformed by the renewal of your feelings. Now, not all of you got it, you see. Because nice Anglicans go to church on Sunday morning, so do nice Pentecostals, to feel better. But actually, you should go to church to think better, which usually should make you feel awful, until you are obedient, and then you will feel better. The feelings are God's province, uh, as are the province of rational action. You said something to the effect that we don't have societies as such because we don't have a shared story, yeah, a shared sort of story. Uh, so what, I mean, what does that imply for those of us who live in, say, South Africa or another kind of pluralistic Well, it, uh, the, you all heard the question because he's got a microphone. I think it's a serious issue. Uh, Canada is perhaps the best example in the world because we've had the highest immigration rate in the world for the last 25 years. Australia has now passed us in the annual rate but they've got a few years before they catch up us so we have no problems at that level because everybody assumes you were you're from somewhere else now the number of canadians who've been there more than three generations oh you're a real canadian <laughs> so it's not a problem at that level but it is a problem that we need to ask more carefully we need to think a lot more carefully and make people who want to move around the world think more carefully why are you moving that's question one if you're moving because you can't make a decent life where you are, you need to answer the question why can't I do that so that you leave the things that made it like that behind We do say to them, don't bring your wars with you, some of them do and we send them back if they if they start bringing their wars with them, we throw them out and I think that's appropriate but They're coming into a society that works, not perfectly, but better than the others. With respect, nobody is queuing up outside the Saudi Arabian embassy to ask for an immigration visa. But despite all the nasty things the world says about America, they want to go there. And they certainly want to come to Canada and Australia and New Zealand. So we need to talk about that. And we need to take their central book and say this is what your book says do you really believe that because that is not congruent with this society you cannot be happy and that's true they feel marginalized the only way you won't feel marginalized is if you coming here because it works i want to become a canadian canadians don't know who they are either and we don't know who we are that's why i teach a history of ideas program because what professors do to students is inappropriately take apart their wills without putting in place anything any better. I mean, if you send your children to the arts faculty, most of the profs in the arts faculty put inverted commas around the word truth. It's ironic. It doesn't actually exist. So you mean you want me to pay a lot of money so that you can teach my children that truth doesn't exist, including what you've just said? I mean, the whole thing is incoherent. And it, it's getting more and more silly. So many big companies around the world are saying to people, don't go to, don't go to the arts faculty, get the technical training, we'll do the rest. Um, but they, they also make the mistake at the university of thinking that everything is a problem of ignorance, which it isn't. I can prove it to you in an interesting way. Raise your hand if you are good. I'll tell you in the front row what's happened. You're not alone. There's not a single hand gone up anywhere. So that makes it quite clear that ethics lectures are not needed. You have no problem with knowing what good and evil are. Like me, you have a problem with doing the good and avoiding the evil, right? But that's not a problem of ignorance, so the universe has nothing to say about it. The only place where I had a lot of hands go up was Alabama, but they're all moral relativists down there. And I, I sorted that out because it came from the back row forward, you know, starting with a sporting job. So I said to them, Do you mean good in relation to some real absolute standard or in relation to the guy next to it? Of course, it's the guy next to it. Moral relativism. Reductionism, moral relativism, tolerance, they're major issues. You've got to have a Christian understanding of those things. If you, wanted, if you want society to go on as your grandparents would, would tell you it was. If you how many of you have ever come across a, an American writer called Wendell Berry? Uh, the hands go up immediately because he's a beautiful writer, isn't he? If you want a series of novels that will make you think about this, and they don't preach at all. He has written the imagined social history of a rural community in Kentucky over the whole of the last century. And he shows you how that world is changing, and it rings true. He's also written the most amazing pro-life essay that I've ever read. It starts; The first chapter is based on King Lear, and then he takes E.O. Wilson apart in the rest of the book. And for a very short introduction, just put "Mad Farmer Liberation Front" into Google, and read the poem that comes up. It has almost a cult following now, but it gives you a sense of his artistic power. But we need, in these days, good novelists are doing a better job than anyone else because they get you. The novel I love Wendelberry, but I've known about him for years. Another one you won't have heard of is a man called um, Michael O'Brien, and his book called island of the world which is set in the balkans after the second world war is the most emotionally moving book that i've read in my life uh, It reduced me to tears and prayer several times and it has done that to everybody i've rec- uh, recommended to afterwards who's subsequently written to me my wife who doesn't normally read novels couldn't put it down uh, you can't say that about many and it's the time of year when you're looking for books of that quality there's a couple any of Wendell Berry's work and Michael O'Brien's too but particularly Island of the World.